I'm Roxanne Serta, and I'm the Acquisitions Editor for CNT Publishing. I've been acquiring books for nearly 20 years, and the past seven of those have been here at CNT. Through my job, I get the privilege of meeting countless designers, authors, and industry professionals who all do amazing things with their creativity. I'll be bringing some of those quilting and stitching personalities to this podcast to share their amazing stories and insider information. Download the latest episodes and get to know great crafters, learn the backstories behind events and people, and hear funny stories from people living the crafty life. Hi, today I'm talking to Lori Lee Triplett. Lori is an award-winning author, a quilter, an historian, and manages the vast privately held Pooh's collection of antique quilts. Lori, I know you're between two trips um, with a very brief pause at home, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm happy to be here. Well, and for anybody who doesn't already know, um, could you tell us a little bit about what the Pooh's collection is? The Poos Collection is one of the largest privately held quilt and textile collections uh, in the world. And it was named to honor our grandmother, Martha Poos. Uh, Martha Poos is really the one who taught my sister and I how to quilt. And so it was named to honor her, but she is not the originator of the collection. Well, and I know that actually you and your sister Kay started the collection. Um, how long have you been collecting? Well, I'd like to tell a story about a picnic when I when we were both in elementary school. I, I tend to be a food-motivated individual. And so my, our grandmother had given us a tied quilt to use as a picnic blanket. And when we went to put the blanket down, so that we could sit down and eat our picnic lunch, which was my main goal, of course. Um, Kay decided that that was going to be her first rescue of a quilt. <laughs> and so she rescued our picnic blanket, and then I had no place to eat my picnic lunch. Uh, naturally, it didn't stop me from eating, but um, it was the beginning of her collecting, which has... Uh, continued for many years. Well, and yeah, that's a pretty early start for a quilt collector, I have to say. Um, so it sounds like the two of you were interested in, well, that might not have been an antique quilt. So when were the two of you first interested in antique quilts? I think um, it's very early. I'm not sure that I can pinpoint a specific time. Our grandmother was part of a quilting bee and she had um, some historic quilts, but not anything like uh, the collection really focuses on now. But we certainly were exposed to it early on. Our mother took us to, to museums from a very early age and we traveled a lot and really had the opportunity to see all of these uh, amazing textiles and quilts in museums. Well, and given both your day job and mine, uh, we both clearly feel that quilts are valuable for a number of reasons. But as to antique quilts, can you share why you personally think these particular quilts are important? I think there's lots of reasons why antique quilts are important. Um, sometimes it's the provenance or the story that is associated with the quilt. Uh, it can be that the quilt was made by a person 
who is historic and we need to recognize and acknowledge his or her uh, artistry. It can be that the quilt commemorates an important event or the fabric within the quilt uh, or textile commemorates an important event. To me, the list is almost endless as to why it's important to preserve uh, the heritage of these textiles. Well, in, in the introduction to your newest book, you talk a little bit about calibrating and culling a collection. And you describe calibrating as fine-tuning the collection over time allows the collection to effectively fulfill its stated purpose, such as research, preservation, or simply appreciation. So I take that to mean that you've had to pass up a purchase or an acquisition from time to time and possibly have even had to divest the collection of pieces to meet your stated goals. Is that like a hard thing to do for you? It is a hard thing. It's even more difficult, I think, for my sister Kay. Um, but you have to try and maintain a, a sense of, of focus. And that's one of the reasons that we picked the 1860 as a sort of a guideline to help us um, as we tend to have fewer quilts in the collection that are after the 1860 uh, timeline. Why is that? What, why is, well, can you tell us, actually, I'll back up a little bit. Can you tell us a bit about what the focus is for the Poos collection? The Poos collection started out primarily as uh, sort of quilts that Kay loved, um, or in some cases, uh, early on, quilts that Kay could afford, because remember, she started collecting in uh, elementary school. <laughs> and from there, it it grew to have categories. Red and green was was the first area of collecting. And, and then who could pass up indigo quilts with that beautiful fabric? And chintz quilts have always held a special place for their amazing uh, textiles of fabrics that are contained in it. Um, and so after a while, you keep noticing these categories, but you also notice that there, there is a finite space to maintain these and as well as a finite number of hours to even take care of the collection. So what is it about a particular quilt? So if you were out and about and you found a quilt or somebody brought it to your attention, what is it about that quilt that would make it worthy of inclusion in the collection? Uh, it has a quirk. Uh, it has a bird. <laughs> and I'm very fond of birds and quilts. Um, it has historical significance. It fills uh, what we feel might be a, a gap in the collection. Um, it has an amazing craftsmanship to it. Um, again, there's just a number of reasons that you might choose to select a quilt. Well, and I know that this is kind of like asking you to pick a favorite child, but uh, do you have a favorite quilt? Uh, that question gets asked of me a lot. And, <laughs> and honestly, I don't really have a favorite quilt. I usually say it's the one I'm researching right now um, because I spend so much time researching and that particular quilt really begins to be a part of what's going on in my life. Um, I sometimes answer the menagerie, which is a quilt that's in our uh, new book, Hidden Treasures. Uh, 
And that's because I love animals and it has lots of different animals and birds appliqued uh, onto this uh, table cover. You know, it's killing me not to go flip open the book right now and, and take a look at it, but I'll refrain. I'll look at it in a minute. Um, I read it, but I didn't memorize the quilt names. Um, so Neither did I. <laughs> well, and you, I know that the collection has other non-quilt textiles. So why do you incorporate those and how do they relate to the, uh, the quilts that are in the collection? Um, the textiles relate frequently to travel. Um, they sometimes relate to a different colorway of a particular fabric that might be in a quilt um, or a technique. For example, there's a significant amount of indigo resist African textiles and uh, indigo resist is a particular interest of both Kay and, and mine. Uh, Kay from living and working in Africa and uh, appreciating the West African techniques that have been used for a millennia. And uh, me, because after learning the techniques, I, I adopted those and began using them in my art form as well. Um, well, and so I know you said that in order for a quilt to be something that you want, you know, that's worthy of inclusion in the collection, it needs to be, there needs to be some sort of quirk, but for you, is there anything in particular, like any type of quilt or an aspect or quality of a quilt that when you find it, it really excites you? I don't think there's one particular one. Um, there's just a lot of different reasons. And so it might be that, that this particular quilt you're excited about because you know who made it and you can tell the story of the person who made it. But another quilt you might be particularly fond of because um, the fabric and the creation of the fabric is what excites you about that particular quilt. Um, so it's, it's really just about finding the different appreciations for the textiles or quilts that you have. Gotcha. Um, and so I know you mentioned just a second ago uh, that you, there's kind of a finite number of quilts that you can have because it takes a lot to properly conserve and curate a quilt. And so for anybody who doesn't know how to do that, which I would assume is a lot of people, what really is, what goes into all of that? Well, you, you need to establish some sort of way to track the quilt. Um, once, uh, where has the quilt been before you, um, what provenance do you have associated with the quilt? And then as it moves into the collection, you need to have some sort of tracking number. Um, we have more than one climate controlled storage location. So uh, it's important to know where it is at all times. And, and um, sometimes the quilts will need to move from locations either because we're working on a book or because I might use it in a presentation. Um, and so you have to be able to track the quilt. You want to be able to maintain the quilt or textiles in, again, climate controlled conditions, exposure to light, um, humidity, temperature. You know, you want to ideally keep it in the 60s. Um, those are all different factors that you need to be able to maintain for the good of the collection. 
Gotcha. Is there a lot of kind of labor involved in kind of keeping the quilts in the best possible condition? If you are uh, one who there's, there's a difference in whether you choose to preserve a quilt or uh, conserve a quilt or restore a quilt. Um, restoration involves bringing it maybe to its, as close to its original condition as it was. We don't typically uh, choose to do that. Um, we think it, it alters uh, the, the sort of the historic quality of the quilt by adding things on. Uh, but you may need to add a, a crepe lean or uh, some sort of uh, fabric that would allow the quilt to stay uh, together if there's fabric that is flaking off or popping. Um, and those decisions are more about uh, really preserving the quilt for the best uh, interests of the future. Gotcha. Um, and so we just released your newest book, Hidden Treasures, Quilts from 1600 to 1860. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's a, well, obviously you have, but if our listeners haven't seen it yet, it's a coffee table book and contains 100 never or rarely seen quilts. Um, in your introduction, you refer to this group of 100 quilts as a small sample of whose collection. So how many quilts do you have in the right now? Um, oh, to be honest, we never uh, answer exactly how many quilts we have in the collection. And that's a frequently asked question when I go out and give presentations. Um, and there's various reasons for it, but usually I just kind of joke about, well, would you want to tell somebody how many pieces of fabric you have in your stash? <laughs> okay, so touche. Because <laughs> um, I really don't want to share the size of my fabric stash. Um, well, so how did you settle on 1600 to 1860 as the specific time period for this book? Um, it we decided, uh, actually, the editor selected the, the final time frame based on the quilts that we had included in there. Um, I don't know that either Kay or I felt a real need to be specific on the time frame, but it's helpful for people who are making choices uh, to know what is included in there. We selected 1860 because that happens to be primarily the focus of our uh, collection, and that's what most people know us for. Um, and then the 1600 was uh, the other end of the spectrum because of the quilts that were selected to be in there. That was the earlier ones that were included. Well, and so it, what's significant about the 1860s timeframe that is, it has drawn you to have that as the focus of your collection? Well, you see a shift after the Civil War uh, in quilts. You also see a shift in the production of fabric and the techniques that were used. Um, and, and I think that the 1860 is, is not as clear cut as uh, it might seem. Um, obviously, their uh, dyeing techniques were being developed at different rates, but we do see a real change in that um after the 1860s and so i think that's probably the primary reason for that 
Well, and you also note that um, most of the quilts have either never been seen before or have rarely been displayed. Um, why is that? Well, these quilts are in some cases fragile and in some cases um, they are very rare. And so they're not something that we want to travel. Um, it's a private collection and so uh, Kay has maintained the collection uh, quietly. And so that meant that some quilts were never really out there or visible to most people. Well, in the, the book contains um, album quilts, wool quilts, paper piece quilts, white and white, whole cloth, red and green, indigo and chintz quilts. Were there quilts, like individual quilts or whole groups of quilts that you didn't include but really wished that you could have? Yes, to both. <laughs> we, we really struggled and we, we had more categories initially, including some uh, 20th century quilts that were by uh, well-known artists and artists that are historic to the quilting community in the 20th century. Um, but ultimately, we decided that, that that was not a good fit for this particular book and that we had other quilts that were a better fit for this book. And so that whole category was removed. Um, and then there were individual quilts that it was really a struggle. Um, Kay and I have discussions um, about which quilts should be in, included. And, and ultimately, um, there's always quilts that get left out that both of us wish we could have included. I would imagine. Um, and so Hidden Treasures is really not just a collection of photographs of antique quilts. Each one of the quilts has a lot of history and a lot of background that you present. So during the writing and researching of the book, I know that there was even some travel across the country to learn more about individual quilts. Um, in part, I know this because I was lucky enough to catch up with you and Kay um, on part of your travels. So how much travel went into researching the quilts in the book? Um, quite a bit of travel goes into it. We do as much as we can on the internet, but ultimately sometimes there's nothing that uh, will take the place of going and viewing uh, family files, uh, historical documents in museums, uh, or in historical societies. Um, not everything, although it will be great when everything has been put uh, online or is accessible online. Right now, that's just not the case. And so you can only go so far online and then ultimately you have to make a decision on uh, which trips you need to take to, to do the research to the best of your ability. Well, in addition to the travel, um, not just for the quilts in the book, but how much research do you do for each of the quilts that you bring into the collection? Um, it depends on the quilt, uh, on how much we do and how much we can discover. Um, sometimes we'll do more research on one quilt because there is a path we can follow. Whereas other times a quilt comes into the collection and there's absolutely nothing there for us to follow. Um, it doesn't mean that 
that won't eventually happen. Uh, just this week, someone emailed us because they thought a quilt in the new book was similar in style and in the fabric choices to another quilt that this uh, reader was aware of in uh, another private collection as well as in another museum. So of course, uh, Kay and I immediately began to research more. Uh, even though uh, we, the quilt was already included in the book, we, if we can find out more about this quilt and where this quilt came from and who made this quilt, uh, then we want to be sure that we add that documentation to the file on the quilt in the collection. Yeah, it truly is a, a historical book as much as a quilting book. And um, for people who haven't cracked it open yet, I will just share that it has no fewer than 120 footnotes. Um, there's one quilt in particular, though, that I'd love to talk about a little bit. Um, it's the one that you traveled um, out to my area of the country to to research and it's the Vive settlement table cover. So um, in the book, you dedicate 10 pages to that single quilt. And can you talk a little bit about why that's such an important quilt? Sure. The Vive settlement table cover is, uh, is very rare. Um, it is a wool quilt wool table cover to be specific um, and there are fewer wool quilts but it also has um, relation to military we see military insignias and military outfits soldiers on the quilt itself and while we know of other quilts in America that were made using military fabrics. This is the only one known in existence that is pictorial or uses scenes to tell the story. And this one has 41 different scenes um, using various techniques to create these scenes. Now, uh, intarsia is one technique and certainly there are several other countries that have a history of intarsia. Um, but America, the intarsia and this type of quilt, um, it doesn't have a lot of presence. There are uh, maybe nine other examples and they are not pictorial. Well, and I know, um, I found it just fascinating when you were telling me about the quilt. And in particular, I found it fascinating the trail that you had to follow and how much work you really did to kind of learn as much as you could about the quilt. So would you mind kind of explaining the process that you went through to get the, as much of that story on that quilt as you do have? Well, the quilt was sold to us as a Napoleonic error uh, table cover primarily because that is an area where you would see this type of uh, craft and needlework done. Um, and that would be the, the correct age for uh, this particular quilt. Um, but there, it didn't answer any of the questions as we continued to research. And as we really wanted to identify the soldier that was pictured on there. And we really wanted to identify the specific 
military uh, insignia there. Uh, additionally, we could tell there were scenes that were telling a story and, and we wanted to know what the story was. Um, and it's a story that someone else has obviously left for their legacy um, to tell. And so it was important for us to discover it. So we began looking at each scene separately, trying to see if there was anything that we could identify. Uh, Annette Garrow, who's an expert in uh, war quilts from Australia, we emailed a picture to her since she has much more expertise looking at this than we, we do. And she recognized two of the scenes uh, telling William Tell, the story of William Tell, who was a, a famous Swiss hero back in the 1400s. <laughs> so not a, a common, um, although many of us know the tale of uh, shooting an apple off the head, we, we don't really know what's associated with it. Um, and from there, she thought that the soldier looked kind of like Perry. Admiral Perry. And so I began to hunt uh, for Swiss uh, because of the William Tell and for specific soldiers. There were four Swiss colonies in early colonial America, uh, but there was only one of those four colonies that the story began to emerge and the scenes began to tell the formation of New Switzerland or Vive in uh, what was at that point the Indiana uh, territory. Wow, and so I know too that you didn't just kind of stop there. Um, you, you did all this research and then you actually came to Indiana. It just, it reminded me a little bit of the history, um, the PBS history series, History Detectives. Um, what kind of digging did you end up doing once you got here? Uh, well, we visited several historical societies. We visited the, uh, uh, and they actually say Vive um, Historical Society. And we actually looked up information about the families and, and the historical society was very, New Switzerland Historical Society was very helpful to us. They had files of, on each family that we had identified as being depicted in the table cover. And so we went through reading each file in which we'd find even invitations to parties from then or announcements. Um, sometimes there would be handwritten notes. Some of the papers were in uh, French and some were in German, depending on the family, um, because uh, each family brought their language with them. Um, so uh, some of the times the papers would have been translated, sometimes not. Um, we also went to the Indiana Historical Society where, um, because one of the families was so prominent, there were notes written and letters. Um, and so we, we looked through those as well and tried to really piece together the story one of the descendants is was an author that wrote historical uh, articles for the Indiana History Magazine, as well as a book uh, on the family. And 
but there aren't a lot of copies of those books. And so we went to the library to be able to access the copy. And it turned out to be one that she had written handwritten notes and corrections uh, on this book copy after it was published and it provided additional information. Wow. Um, yeah, I was just really impressed by the amount of research and legwork and everything that goes into learning about these different textiles. Um, and so earlier we kind of touched on what it takes to conserve books in the collections and for kind of a behind the scenes peek in how this book came together um, from a production standpoint, um, I just, I know that it's a significant issue for you when quilts, especially a large number of quilts, have to travel to another location and then be handled. So for this book, it meant that you had to gather 100 the quilts in the book and get them to our studio. Can you um, share a little bit about what those logistics entailed? Well, of course, we couldn't have selected quilts that were all located at one storage location. So <laughs> it meant that we needed to visit both storage locations. It meant that some of the quilts that are currently used in presentations would need to be pulled out of those presentations. And we wouldn't be able to give the presentation um, if too many of those quilts were from there. So we had a very narrow win window um, we don't like to fly with the quilts. Um, anyone who's seen how luggage is treated can certainly understand that. And that was a larger number of quilts than we were going to be able to carry on. Um, and so we actually rented a vehicle uh, and accumulated them. We had to label them, track them, sort them get them in uh, specific suitcases that match the group categories, and then uh, drove them out, of course, to um, the facility where they would be photographed. And in the meantime, we had a presentation <laughs> and an event that we were going to, and so we rushed off to the event um, while I think some people at CNT were madly <laughs> working to try and get the photographs so that when we were done with our event, we would come back, pick the quilts up, and then return them safely to their specific storage location. Well, and um, I just want to talk a little bit to the production process. So for, for most of the books that we would do, um, we would get quilts or projects that come in to the studio. Um, most of the time they are sent in, so they go through the mail. And we would have a bit of time really to conceptualize plan and then photo shoot or shoots that go into uh, getting all the photography for a particular book. So in your case, we had something like 36 hours. Um, and due to the logistics that you were dealing with, you like you mentioned, you had to drop off the quilts on the weekend. Um, and they couldn't be stored in a non secure location. So we had to make sure we met up and got them in got them secured appropriately. And then when it came time to do the photography, we had to do all of the quilts in two days because you were coming back to pick them up on the third day. Um, so, you know, this is already a little bit um, facetiously speaking outside of our normal process. But 
in addition to the tight timeline, uh, there were very specific handling considerations for these quilts. Uh, so in case anybody's curious about the photo shoot, we have two videos that are up on Instagram. Um, people can go, I will link them into the podcast description. You can get a sense of what went into the photography for each of the quilts. I think there's a time lapse or a video of shooting one quilt main photograph. So if you kind of watch that and imagine that happening a hundred different times, that gives you a sense of what went into the photography in the book. Um, but just as a flavor, our publisher, Amy Barrett Daffin, our creative director, Galen Rungi, and the photographer, Dan Peterson, pulled two nine plus hour days in the studio to make sure they were all um, handled and photographed correctly. They were only allowed to wear socks, no shoes um, on their hands. They had to have white gloves. And then they had to carefully unpack, lay out, smooth out, shoot, and then repack each of the quilts in that time. Um, and early on, they realized that in order to be able to walk the next day, they had to go out and get big painters knee pads so they could kneel all over those two days. Uh, so it's just a little kind of funny thing. If you want to go see that, we'll, we'll link those videos. Um, and then I, a question for you um, is, so we know, Amy noted that the white whole cloth quilts were kind of tricky to photograph because you've got to get the lighting adjusted so that you don't get just white in their photograph. You can see the detail that makes that quilt special. But you also included backlit images of some of those quilts. How tricky are those to get done? Those are really tricky. And some of the record shots that we took, not for the book, was about me trying to hold the quilt up because then it, it wouldn't be on a rack or anything. Uh, trying to hold it up with a, uh, a window, using the window light, just to be able to get some backlit on it. And and then, of course, it's like, well, but how do I hide myself? I, I don't want myself, my shadow being part of that because that hides the design in the, in the quilt. And so it, it really is complicated. It's one of the reasons we probably hadn't included whole cloth quilts before because we were the white ones, because we were concerned about what kind of quality photograph you could actually get. Um, there's such a thing of beauty there not to be missed, but it's complicated. Well, I was trying to imagine the size of a light box you'd need to do one of those. <laughs> Yeah, we don't, we obviously don't have a, a light box that size. And I did call and um, check on a couple of uh, locations that have large light boxes, and none of them were of the size that would handle uh, the quilt. So um, you have to make different, unique choices. Wow, that's uh, someday I'd love to see one of those photos taken. Um, but then aside from running the collection, I just wanted to mention that you yourself um, are a quilter. And as, as far as we've discussed, you quilt in a completely different style than the quilt collection that you manage, you know, in your day job. Yes. Um, what kind of quilts do you make? Um, typically, I'm, I'm considered an art quilter for, for category purposes, I guess. Um, but I actually use a lot of the 
older methods. I hand paint my fabric or hand dye my fabric. Um, I really like to paper piece my quilts or hand piece my quilts. Um, and so the, the techniques that I use are many of the techniques that I learned researching uh, the antique quilts, but, um, but I'm not an antique quilter myself. And so my particular voice uh, and the story that I tell is significantly different than the antique quilts. And, and so it tells the story of uh, maybe a, a trip I've been on recently or uh, a special moment with nature. Um, something that, that means a lot to me that I want to share with others. Well, and so um, where can people see those? Um, my quilts are, are available sometimes in galleries and museums. I currently have one in a Sakwa exhibition that's traveling. It just closed uh, in one gallery here in Kansas City, but um, it'll be in another gallery in Oklahoma, and it's going to the Quilters Hall of Fame in Indiana, and then we'll be in the Kemper Museum of of art um, as well. Um, so uh, I've had quilts at the Rocky Mountain Quilt Museum. Um, so just various different locations, museums and galleries. Do you share them online for like a larger audience or do they largely travel with exhibits? Um, I share a picture usually when I get an announcement of an exception, uh, uh, acceptance on my Facebook page, and sometimes I'll include them in a blog, but even that's a rarity. Um, and so occasionally they'll be online, uh, but usually it's about seeing them at a, a gallery or a museum. I have All right. now started to, uh, this next year, we will be including some in a talk that's called Ancient Ways, um, uh, Ancient Days, Modern, Ancient Ways, Modern Days. And uh, so we will show an antique quilt that uses the technique or the pattern, and then we'll show a sample of one that I have created. I'm always creating a quilt. Um, I usually have one that I'm, uh, I because I paper piece, I can travel, and hand piece, I can travel with that. Um, but I do tend to quilt uh, by machine just because I'm such a slow hand quilter. So I usually have a quilt um, uh, that I'm working on, the, hand, the machine quilting on at home, and then a project that I'm uh, working on as I travel. And the one I'm working on right now is called Prince Charming, and it tells the tale of one of my trips to Mexico. So Lori, where can people go see you speak? Well, they can see me speak at uh, quilt guilds, um, speak at quilt festivals, museums, um, and our presentations are available wherever anyone is interested in having us visit. Uh, the presentations of both workshops and uh, trunk shows can be found on our website. Um, and then we usually have four or five upcoming presentations posted on the the homepage. All right. So what is the website that they should go to? Quiltandtextilecollections.com. 
All right. Thank you so much. I mean, I know you're literally between two trips and you're in the very last stages of getting ready to leave. So I truly appreciate you carving out time to talk with me. Take care. All right. You too. This is Roxanne Serta. Thanks for listening to Behind the Scenes. Want to know more about our outstanding group of authors and their books? Visit us online at CT Publishing on Instagram, Twitter, our CNT Publishing channel on YouTube, or on our website at ctpub.com.